Good morning again. If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, we're going to look at the, the entire chapter. We need to be quiet. We are on holy ground in this chapter. This is, this is a sacred place. Chapter 17 is unique, I think, to the Bible and maybe all of literature, where we are going to eavesdrop. We're going we're gonna to listen in on a conversation and overhear the Father talking to the Son. There'll be deep truth in this. When you're in a conversation with someone and you hear it, let's let, you're in a conversation with your boss and you hear them, you'll hear maybe some truth in there. If you overhear your two bosses talking about you behind closed doors, you're going to hear the deep truth. <laughs> That's what's happening here. The father is talking to the son and we get to overhear that. We get to listen in on it. Deep truth here. And it's not just us eavesdropping. The context of this is immediately before Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and taken to the cross. This is like a deathbed prayer. That all by itself is going to be of utmost sincerity and of the deepest things of value. And in this prayer, you're going to see what does Jesus pray for? What does he consider valuable? Who is he thinking about? Us. He's thinking about us. In the context of his conversation with the Father, right before all of the hell breaks loose, literally, he is praying for you and for me. It's amazing. It's going to teach us how to pray. This is a wonderful template. After studying this passage, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm going to pray the rest of my life in a different way, and I'll show you in a moment, but it's just so vivid. He starts off by praying for himself. Jesus is going to pray for himself, and to grasp the, the depth of what he's soon to talk about, he's going to talk about glory, and if you look at the way Bibles are written or stories are written, they think about plays where there's acts and scenes. This is the final act, the upper room discourse and all the way to the end of the book. But in this act, this scene begins and ends with, the, with glory, Jesus saying glory. In chapter 13, verse 31, we talked, when we started our series, after Judas leaves, it says, after Judas leaves, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God will be glorified in him. It starts with glory. It's going to end with glory in chapter 17. Because once Judas leaves, then obedience is mandatory. When Judas leaves the upper room, the sovereignty of God pushes over that first domino and everything else will just fall. The trigger has already been pulled. Freedom is behind us. Now we're in fate. And it is in that context that Jesus is going to say at the beginning, the son of man is glorified because I'm going to fulfill what you told me to do. And now in 17, he's going to say, here we go. Let you be glorified. Chapter 17, verse one, Jesus is praying for himself. He's talking about glory. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those you, you have given him. Now this is eternal life. His next sentence is 
a single sentence summarizing the message of the Bible itself. It is, it is the good news. It is the purpose for the meta-narrative of all human history. This next sentence is salvation. Here it goes. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to spend just a second on that because he's going to say a version of his mission multiple times in his prayer. First part of his mission is that people would know the one true God. And how would they know that? Through Jesus Christ, whom you sent. He's going to say again and again, because of his obedience, he was sent here so the world might know the one true God. And the means of that is through Jesus Christ alone. That is how he's going to receive glory. And glory means weight, substance, significance. <laughs> and so we keep reading here. He says, I, I, have, I have brought you glory on earth by, how's that? By finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even began. Glory is going to be received by Jesus Christ because he completed his mission. In his absolute obedience to the Father, glory is given to him so that he might give it to the Father. And so it is with us. Every act of obedience gives us glory, weight, significance, so that we might glorify the Father. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's praying for, that glory would be given through his completion of the task, the mission, to introduce the world to the only true God and Jesus whom the Father sent. That's his prayer for himself. And now he's going to pray for you and me, for the 11, but also the, everyone that is a believer. And I would like, for the sake of how, much, how little time we have, do me a favor, release my guilt. Could you read through this prayer, chapter 17, maybe four times? because there's so much here. And when you do that, look at it in two ways. One is as a template for prayer itself. And while you're reading it, look for these four things because they'll be repetitious throughout. Jesus is gonna pray for their holiness. He's going to say, sanctify them with the truth. He's gonna pray for our unity because he's going to say, let them be one as the Father and the Son are one. He's gonna pray for us in our mission in life that the Father sent the Son, the Son sends us on this mission. And last, he's going to pray that we might continue to receive the love of God in our understanding of the one true God. So that's the outline. Those are the topics. Let's look at it individually now. Jesus prays for our holiness. Jesus prays for our holiness. Before we look at our holiness, it's important to see what does it mean to have the holiness of God? And it's interesting when you look at the prayer of Jesus, this is certainly one of the ways my prayers will be changed, is the way Jesus addresses the Father when, when he's being overheard. This is, how, this is how the Son speaks in the context of the triunity. Look what he says in verse 11. Holy Father. This is how Jesus approaches the Father. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. In 25, he addresses the father. He says, righteous father, though the world does not you, know you, I know you and they know you and they know that, uh, that you have sent me, that you have sent me. That's that second part of the purpose. But look how Jesus talks to the father. He calls him holy father. 
I, as much as I can remember, I'm going to say righteous father, holy father. And what does it mean for God to be holy? The word itself, it, it's difficult. You could write a trillion books on the word holiness. There's several different applications. In the context of this prayer, sanctify is going to be a synonym that, is, that will be used repetitiously. And so that description of holiness is to, to mean to set apart, to, to put over for a purpose, to distinguish itself from everything else and usually the common things. To be sanctified means you're not like anything else. And so God, we, our first uh, worship song to, together is uh, it's quoting from 1 Samuel chapter 2, I think verse 2, where he says, God says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. There is none beside me. In Isaiah chapter, I think 40, he says, I am the holy one. To whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? Yahweh says, I can't be compared because I am separate completely from all other things. There is none like me. He is utterly exalted. He is infinitely transcendent. Those are big words, but it's, they're very difficult to grasp. We can, gra we can somewhat understand holiness when it comes in contact with something that we do know and understand. When, when God's absoluteness <laughs> touches anything in this creation, it just seems so relative. His infinitude has us measuring galaxies with micrometers. <laughs> and his eternal nature has us talking about our own existence as the Bible says, a vapor, just poof. And when people come in contact with that otherness of God, that separateness, that sanctified. That Isaiah, arguably the most righteous man in Israel at the time, has a communion event with this sacred God, and, and in that experience, he is exposed to the infinite purity of Yahweh and says, I am unclean. Job pursues wisdom and knowledge, trying to make sense out of the life that he has been experiencing. And when he has an audience with the transcendent wisdom of Yahweh, he says, I'm a fool. I'm so foolish to even ask. So when we look at this passage when he prays, I want you to see that Jesus is going to be sanctified and set apart so that we can be set apart. There's a purpose to it. Look what it says in 15 through 19. He says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but rather you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world for them. Look at that. For them I sanctified myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. The last words of Jesus in a prayer to the Father, he is praying for you and for me to be set apart. He says, he says I, he's in heaven already. He's with the Father. I have been set apart over here into earth. I've been set apart so that you and I can be sanctified in the presence of God. 
He does that for us. He, he, was, he is sanctified. How did he do that? He did that completely. That was his mission, to take on the very form of man even to the point of death on a cross. He did it to play with words here. He is holy, completely, wholly committed to holiness. There was nothing that he would not do to sanctify us. He did everything he could do to make us holy, to sanctify us. He did it for them. What that means is he did it for us. Why did he do all of that? For us. And here's why. Because the answer to every existential difficulty and problem in our life is going to find its answer in being sanctified, in being set apart and, and knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Whatever problem, I mean significant problem that we endure and we find ourselves living in that suffering and we're asking why, sometimes the details cannot be known in this lifetime, but the ultimate answer will be holiness. That you are knowing the one true God and experiencing that through Jesus Christ. That's why he was sent. <laughs> I mean, if, if, the answer, if the answer to the question is holiness, I know that sounds trite, but it's not. It's not simplistic. It's profound. Jesus came here so that he could make us uh, mature and complete and lacking in nothing. That's, those are descriptions of the word holiness. You know how we describe holiness at grace? To become like Christ in all of life. Whatever season of life you're going through, whatever experience in life you're going through, if you become like Christ in that aspect of your life, you'll be set apart, you'll be sanctified in that, and you'll experience the fullness of the one true God. It's no, it's no wonder that we have that as our job or goal for every person that walks through our doors is have them become like Christ in all of life. Because that's why Jesus came and left heaven to be sanctified and set apart. For that very purpose. Jesus tells us how we can be sanctified, not just through his death and resurrection, but in real time, verse 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. So holy sanctification comes when we know and enjoy and obey the words of God. The revelation of God, the nature of that reveal to us the nature of God and the promises of God, but also just the ethics of God. We find ourselves set apart when we actually do those. <laughs> we, uh, we, we give ourselves and invest our lives into other people. When we give our time and our possessions and our wealth away for things that God is leading us to. When we forgive people that are our enemies and don't even wanna be forgiven. When we speak truth. When we stay sexually pure, those parameters, they're going to set us aside, aren't they? You'll be set apart living in this world. You won't be of the world. You'll be set apart by that world. And it's not just in that lifestyle. The only way you can do that is to be, let's play with the words again, wholly dedicated to holiness. <laughs> There's no half measures that are going to get you to the place where you're living unconditionally surrender to the Lord where you're there's nothing you won't do to be holy there's 
you'll do anything and everything to be set apart and sanctified. Every aspect of your life. Abraham Piper is a pastor and scholar, and he says, there is not a single area in your life where Jesus Christ has not looked upon that and said, mine. There's not a single aspect of your life where Jesus Christ has not looked upon it and said, mine. That belongs to me. Every part of our life to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be like Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it in a picturesque way in the book Mere Christianity when he describes our relationship with God that we often pursue God to get something fixed that we can't fix ourselves, like a, a compulsive desire to gossip or vanity or lust, something like that. And we go to God for help and God says, much obliged, allow me to come on in and change your life. And we want him to just stay in that one section. And Lewis makes it like, it, like, he, like he's fixing up a house, like your soul is a house. And we ask him in for this one thing that's broken, like let's say uh, your bathroom. The master bathroom needs fixing up and the things aren't working right. So we ask the Lord in to help us with that area of lust. And he says, sure. And then once he gets in there, he's looking around going, this is a fixer upper. I'm gonna, you're gonna love what I'm gonna do with this place. I'm taking it down to the slab. Nope, we're tearing the slab up too. And he starts meddling in all parts of our lives because there's not an area in our life where Jesus Christ has not looked upon it and said, mine. I want to get into all parts of your life so that you might become like Christ in all of life. And he's going to take us from a shack to a castle. You're going to love what he's done with it. But like a lot of fixer, it's going to be tough getting there. Why would we be so committed to holiness. Jesus says it in his prayer. It helps us stay motivated and desire to be separate and like him. Look at verse 19 more closely. He says, for them, for them I sanctified myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. He's praying to the father and he's saying, look, when the Father gave me the command to come to this earth and be that sacrifice and that atoning sacrifice for people, he knew, like he's saying, I did this for them. I knew this was the only way they could have, any human being could have a relationship with the one true holy God. And so Jesus says, I separated myself from heaven. I separated myself from the Father to become like man so that we could separate ourselves from this life and become like Christ. He says, I did it for them. And that's where we get this power. We look at those two words, for them, for us. One translation says, for their sake, for my sake. I imagine what Jesus did in his humiliation. And I think if he did anything and everything to be sanctified, why wouldn't I do anything and everything to be sanctified? When we pray, we say, dear king of all kings, good shepherd, <laughs> in a greater understanding of what you left to be separated from heaven and your father, may that be the motivation that I would be wholly committed to holiness. I want to be like Christ 
in my commitment to holiness. Jesus prays that we'd be holy. And then he says he, he prays that we would be unity, for our unity. Look in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their messages, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's his mission. Verse 29, I have given them glory. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me there it is. And have loved them even as you have loved me. You can see how unity would absolutely and almost necessarily follow this wholehearted commitment to holiness. Like it's logical. It's natural. If, if you and I, if we're all holy and completely committed to holiness, then why wouldn't we also be just unified with one another? Another way of looking at this, sometimes we'll say around here, that maturity can simply be defined as caring a lot about a little and caring a little about a lot. And what's happening in this passage is when we are more committed or most committed or compulsively committed to being separate, to being sanctified and holy, what happens is all of our life is consumed with becoming like Christ in all of our life, then we've kind of run out of reasons to disagree for the most part. Everything becomes so trivial. So the more wholehearted commitment we have to the righteousness of Christ, the easier it is to be unified and the harder it is to divide us. It's interesting, the Bible illustrates this in an interesting way in the idea that we are when we're followers of the one true God, that we, we get a new identity, we get a, a new reason and purpose to live, we get a new ownership, we get new definitions of who we are. And that happens vividly in Exodus chapter 19. Israel has now been set free by the power of God. They've had a salvation experience. They're set free from Egypt. And then, and then the Lord God, Yahweh, reveal, says to them, have you seen what I did with you in Egypt? How I carried you out on the uh, the wings of eagles, and then he says this, that, so that, that you would be my treasured possession, my holy nation, my own people. You have a new passport, a new last name, a new home. This is a radical identity change, and the identity is holiness. You're different. You're separate. You're heavenly. And then in the New Testament, Peter takes that same phrase and that same description and says, that's the church. Peter says, you're my chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And what's, what's fun about kind of the literal word holy nation, it's actually what we would say is holy ethnic. And I like that because it's, it's somewhat vivid about the kind of the power of an ethnic upon a lot of our life. In other words, when you, when you are in part of an ethnic group, it defines so much about your life. And that's, I think that's the point here. When you're a holy ethnic, it's defining a lot of different ways in your life. Let me just illustrate with just the title of a movie. If you haven't seen it, it's called Big Fat Greek Wedding. 
I did not name it that, but it's about a big fat Greek wedding. It's about a non-Greek entering into a Greek family, a bunch of big fat Greeks apparently, and how he's having a cultural shocking experience because they have Greek food and Greek hobbies and Greek entertainment and Greek arguments, like yelling all the time. Like, that's not yelling, that's talking. With that in mind, you know, the Bible here is saying that we are a holy ethnic and that means we have holy entertainment and holy conversations and holy arguments and holy humor, holy child rearing. It's, it's all of our life. By saying it's a holy nation, it's saying like Christ in all of life. Holy nation, holy ethnic. We're unified by this holy commitment to holiness. And so what happens in our life is we care so much about that that we're, we're children of God first and then American second. Or, or part of this holy ethnic first and whatever my ethnicity is, distant second. My socioeconomic group, can't even remember. Even my blood family, I can find myself way more unified with someone from another country, from another ethnic group or race, with another language having way more unity with that person than somebody that I actually grew up with and had the same parents with because that bond is far more powerful. How could we not be unified if we're all not wholly committed to holiness? So he prays for us. He says, I want you to be separate over there, wholly committed to holiness in a different ethnic so that you would be unified. You'd be my treasured possession and that's what would define you. And you'd understand that, that I became separate for your sake. And that's, what, that's the engine oil and gas that's running this thing. And now we're sanctified, we're unified, and he won't leave us alone. He says, I want you to, he's praying for our mission. Jesus prays for our mission. Look now at the purpose of life in this unity and holiness. Verse 15, again, same verses, but now with a different cause. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I was not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctified myself so that they too may be truly sanctified. Verse 20 says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's Jesus' mission again. They have a mission to let the world know that Jesus has been sent by the Father so that we can have a relationship with the one true God. And so when you ask the question, for the love of God, why wouldn't you just take me out of this world? He responds, for the love of God, because... The Father sent the Son. The Son sent us. We have, we have something to do with all of this unity and all of this holiness. And as a matter of fact, it's the holiness. This, this sanct, we are sanctified. And un, that gives us power to be able to be in the world but not of the world. That's where the power comes from. And it says we're on mission. And you, you can look, if you look carefully, the idea of missions here is being sent 
original language, it would be being sent ones. You are messengers. Sometimes the word evangelist, the giver of good news, the spokesperson. And if, you, if you're not careful, you can think that that's a religious word, but it's not. I mean, we are missionaries. We are on mission for the most part. Whenever we know truth and we encounter people that we love, we tell them a message. We're missionaries to that cause. If I go to a great gym and I want you to go to a great gym, I'd say, hey, you should go to my gym. I'm, now I'm a gym missionary. I'm a gym evangelist. In the early days of Apple, I was one of these people. In the early days of Apple, we just told everybody, you should go to Macintosh. It's so much easier. It was so pervasive that the marketing director at Apple called us Apple evangelists, missionaries, because we love people and we knew the truth, and it is true, it's easier than a PC. You know, there's some, there's some, sometimes we're overwhelmed with the truth and we don't even have to love some people much and we'll tell them, don't go into that ocean. It's dangerous. There's a riptide. It'll drown the best swimmers. Just thought you'd want to know. So we're giving out messages a lot. If you have truth and you have love, this combination, this dynamic combination will make you a missionary of whatever that message is. You take one of those away, you don't know the truth, you have nothing to tell anyone. If you don't love people, you can know the truth and you don't know them well enough to tell them. So it's, it has to be both. And, and, and when you look, it's interesting that Jesus prays this prayer that I want them to stay in the world and not be of the world. Jesus says, look, I was sent by the Father into this sewage. I'm sending you into the sewage as well. And why does he pray that? Here's why. Gravity. It is, all you have to do is nothing and you're gonna slip to one side or the other of, of, of this golden mean between extremes. It's so difficult to be in the world and not of the world. And so he prays that he, we would stay on this precipice because it's very easy to be imitators of the world, be in the world and of the world. I'm just gonna go along to get along. I'm going to take on the values and, and the lifestyle and not separate. Usually when I do that, the motive is I want to be liked. I don't like people making fun of me, whatever it might be. But the, the point is, there's no message now. I don't have a truth anymore to convey to all the people I love and they love me. They look at me and say, what do you have that we don't have? If all the answers are becoming like Christ in all of life, it doesn't look like you're doing it. There's nothing to tell. Then the other extreme is not to you know, imitate the world. It's to isolate yourself from the world. Let's just hunker down, like surround ourselves like a wagons with the three families that we love and just ride this baby out and pray that Jesus comes back. And that's pretty common too. It's easy to do. Motive there is stay safe at any cost. But that's not what Jesus prays for. He's not telling us to, to be safe. He tells us, <laughs> be in the world and not of the world. You know what the truth is. Do you not know people well enough to love them? That you have the answer to the problem? All existential serious problems have this answer to become like Christ in all of life, to know the Father through the Son whom he sent. So Jesus is praying that we would be in infiltration, 
that we would be like insulated by the Spirit. He's prayed for our protection, and we would go into the world but not be of the world, that we would be messengers of truth in the context of love with this whole new ethnic. So we're doing it together in a commitment to holiness, and we get to show the way out of the sewage. The Father sent the Son into the world. Why wouldn't he send us in the same way? Unity. We have holiness, unity, mission, and then finally he prays for love. Look what he says in verse 25, out of time. But he says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. There's his mission again. Verse 26, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. I love this last sentence in the, at the end of his prayer. He prays that he wants to continue to reveal what it means to have an intimate relationship with the one true God. He says that, we, that I and will continue to make you known to you, to me. Jesus is not done. If you read Hebrews, I think it's chapter 12, it's a beautiful storyline in that it shows that after Jesus died and then was resurrected and then ascended into heaven, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father now and he prays and intercedes for us. So the last application is beautiful here that when we pray this prayer, and I'd ask you to consider it as a template, you're not praying to God, you're praying with God. Think about that. Imagine that. Have you ever sat around a table and held hands and prayed? Right? Now, imagine yourself the next time you pray, you're holding hands with Jesus himself as he continues to reveal and be our intercessor, it says in Hebrews. But also he says, I will continue to reveal the Father so that you might experience more and more love. You're holding hands with Jesus. You're not praying alone. We had a wonderful story about an old pastor. He's gone to be with the Lord, but he used to, when people would come up to him and they'd say, hey, pastor, will you pray with me? He'd say, well, I absolutely will, but I want you to know this, that while I'm praying with you and for you, Jesus is too. We're praying with Jesus. I hope that's comforting. And when I read that, I went, oh, that's comforting, all right. Jesus and I are gonna talk to the Father together. And what are we going to pray? Well, we're going to pray for holiness and unity and purpose and experience of the depth of love that we can know when we enjoy the one true God through Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Would you join me right now in that prayer? Holy Father, Holy Father, Lord, I love overhearing this conversation that you had with the son and how he spoke so highly of us with great ambition. And if he would set himself apart from you so that we could, set our, we could be set apart for you, I'd ask, Lord, that you would help us be wholly committed to this holiness. Lord, I'd ask, righteous father, I would ask that you would reveal to us the petty things that we find fault with with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're more concerned about whatever 
than we are concerned about being part of your new ethnic, your prized possession. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand the fullness of unity that comes in being unified with you and the Son and the Spirit, and we can be that way with one another. Holy Father, I pray for the mission that you've left us with, that you've arranged good works in Christ before the beginning of time, that you would open our eyes to see that you have moved us into Austin for such a time as this. And Lord, I'd ask, I am overwhelmed with gratitude, Holy Father, that you would continue to reveal your love to us, that you would allow the Son to continue to pray for us and intercede on our behalf. And we celebrate that. As your children, we praise you as the one true God and our holy and righteous Father, both. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen.